Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Grimmy and Greg swap slots on Radio 1. Are companies paying for favourable news coverage and does it matter? And could we be about to see a partnership between the BBC and ITV? Plus, our panel discuss how online data privacy has impacted ad spend, whether Discovery are about to leave Britain behind, and in the Media Quiz, we play... Ladies first. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me today is Alex Hudson, deputy editor of Metro.co.uk. What's new with you, Alex? Too much. So much stuff is happening, and it's actually I'm jumping up and down a little bit. And it's You're not. A little, You're I'm, sitting down. You look placid. I'd say. Oh, I'm <laughs> bouncing a little bit uh, because we've just uh, got Amy starting to work. She's our new communities editor. She has uh, come to us from HuffPo, and she comes to us brilliant stories like all of the apocalypse stuff was her work, and the days of our lives thing that she's been working on. It's wonderful, and we're excited. And hopefully, we're going to have some very very senior people writing for us. Hopefully, by tomorrow, though I can't talk about who it is. That should be really good. So you, you've poached some journalists, basically. That's what you're. That exci- is exciting. That's what gets you excited. Because exci- okay. we're going through the, this whole sort of content reimagining thing and doing all sorts of new stuff, and it's going to be a, a thousand-page document that I've somehow spent time writing. Okay, content reimagining. It's good to get some buzzwords straight in <laughs> off the bat. Uh, and joining us, making her media pod debut, it's Imriel Morgan, CEO of the Shoutout Podcast Network. Uh, Imriel, tell us about that. Yeah, uh, we set up a network back in 2015 to champion underrepresented voices, specifically in media, but we use podcasting as a tool to do that. Um, So yeah, we're in our third year of operation, nine podcasts later, um, and we're just launching our second festival focusing on radical women in podcasting. I should point out at this point, you're wearing a jumper that says Martina Martina Luther Luther Queen, Queen, which is amazing. Thanks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Now, we talk a lot about diversity on this show, but in terms of podcasting, when you say underrepresented voices... Mm -hmm. Like there's a part of me that thinks, well, it's an open platform, anyone can make a podcast, so why are some voices underrepresented at all? And what are the issues that you face there? Uh, well, anyone can make a podcast. I think when we first started, no one really knew what it was specifically in our demographic. We had a really hard time finding talent um, that were like Black British, for example. So we had to do a lot of kind of education around what podcasting is, why you should bother with audio. And now it's kind of had this massive 
boom where everyone wants one now which is really handy so there aren't too many voices that we can't hear in podcasting but uh, I think there's a long way to go with regards to black British identities Asian identities disabilities LGBTQ stories making pushing their way into the mainstream because as we can see from like iTunes and things um, the charts very much still slant to white guys white people yeah but then with podcasting it's just interesting isn't it because it there's a little bit of pushing isn't there there's a little bit of featured podcasts and advertising But there's also a lot of audience adoption, isn't it? And clearly, it seems like what the audience like is kind of middle-aged comedians. That's basically, and and football. Um, So how do you tell people that they can go and find other stuff? Uh, Largely through social media. That has been the biggest growth channel because discoverability isn't the best uh, besides what's already pushed by the platform. So we do a lot on social and obviously black Twitter is like a massive phenomenon anyway. So we grew in the first two years just through black Twitter, pushing our content and pushing our stories and just jumping on what's trending. Um, So now we're very much kind of riding that wave and trying to move and evolve what that means for content creators from underrepresented backgrounds. What does underrepresented really mean in a UK context specifically Um, so we are looking at different types of stories different types of people we are looking at people with disabilities and wheelchairs how do we get them accessing high quality recording equipment and resources so yeah we're kind of evolving where what the next generation of voices really looks like and what that means and it could be incredibly more inclusive than just black people doing podcasts and uh, also uh, in her day job Alex Imriel is a social media consultant and yet you have failed to poach her to my knowledge, unless she's, she's your exciting hire so tomorrow. So far, so yeah. far. <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> Let's start by talking about the uh, big media shake-up story of the week, which is that Nick Grimshaw and Greg James are swapping roles on Radio 1. Uh, Grimmy officially announced he's giving up the Radio 1 breakfast show uh, on Thursday morning. Greg James is going to be taking over their swapping slots. Alex, your reaction, please. I don't know why they're swapping slots. Radio 1 is meant to be this home of new voices, home of new talent. It's meant to be bringing up the, the next brilliant new things. And they've got two thirty something swapping jobs between what's a one can sleep in more than the other one. And that's not showing this exciting, wonderful new talent. It's just six years later swapping over. Grimmy was brilliant when he started. Chris Moles is polarizing with what you think of him, but he brought a different spin on the breakfast show. Grimmy did the same thing. I can't see Greg James bringing that new spin to a potentially stale format. Do you listen to Radio 1 in real? I do not. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever listened to Radio 1. Is that right? Yeah. I don't listen to any radio. Is that a terrible thing to say on this podcast? Well, um, it's a problem, isn't it, for Ben Cooper? <laughs> I, um, yeah, I don't find Radio 1 to be particularly accessible to me. I actually don't find most of BBC Radio to be particularly accessible. So, In terms of bringing up new talent, which is what you're talking about, Alex, that, the place to do that was never breakfast and probably not really drive either I mean what you do is you you give people a night show like Grimmy had six years ago and then you bring them up to a bigger show so it's not really a surprise that it's someone of the caliber of Greg James who you know might not be very exciting but is a very capable broadcaster who's the person that gets given breakfast if BBC Radio 1 is meant to be this thing that attracts this 18 to 24 primarily but 18 to 30 or 13 to 30 audience you have to have a presenter who is between the ages of 13 and 30, or else you are somehow speaking down or speaking across to somebody. Like, you are not... John Peel? I, I think, mean, exception that proves the rule? Exception that also, I think John Peel's audience... Cotton was in her 30s. John Peel's audience was horribly old, but if you're speaking to people directly and you're trying to... If people are waking up with you and that's how they start their... If that's how they develop their personality, that's, how, that's what voices they hear early in the morning, it can't be somebody who's 30-something. It has to be someone who speaks with them. And so it's quite telling that you actually 
don't relate to any of these voices. And that's the exact point at which Radio 1 is meant to be this replenishable. Mm-hmm. It's meant to bring new people into listening to BBC Radio. That's a problem that BBC should be fixing, and that's where Radio 1 can step in. Yeah, I agree. I think One Extra is doing wonderful things. I know some people on there. But you don't listen to it? No. <laughs> I don't drive. I think um, it's also about like the fact that I commute a lot. So um, radio, for me, is always something that I view as a live broadcast. I'm commuting, so I listen to podcasts. I'm more likely to listen to Spotify on music. So, But it is interesting what you said about having presenters that do speak to the demographic that they're trying to reach. I think that's incredibly important. And it is a shame that they've kind of swapped what is... It's like a clone of each other. So <laughs> There's also... I mean, not that Greg James is the blokiest of presenters... But nonetheless, you know, in a landscape now where you're going to have Dave Berry on Absolute, you've got Chris Moyles on Radio X and you've got Chris Evans on Radio 2, you can kind of see, and even Sean Keefe on Six Music, who's also not very blokey, but nonetheless sort of appealing to the same kind of guy, basically, you can see that maybe they could have made a more creative choice there. And also when it comes to diversity, it's it's a group of white middle class men. We have this problem in media that we so often talk about and whenever I listen to podcasts we're not here, somehow it comes up in some way, we talk about it later. We can't just keep employing white middle-class men to senior jobs because that's what we've had before. That's not the way that media has to work. It cannot work in that way. But then I suppose the question is, Imriel, if you were running Radio 1 and you say there's great people on One Extra, are any of them ready to have the Radio 1 breakfast show? I mean, that is pretty much the biggest job in radio, isn't it? Even if it doesn't have the list. I say give it to them and see what happens. I think we are so used to taking risks on white men anyway that why can't we just take the risk on a Asian woman or a young black man like we won't know if they can do the job or step up to the mark until they actually do it and people need to get used to that I think uh, wasn't it Channel 4 that had like a Trinidadian uh, woman doing like the voice changeover stuff Um, and people complained because they didn't like her accent but people got used to it eventually and it eventually worked out so I think we just need to get people used to listening but it also says a lot when they keep hiring the same types of people maybe they don't really care about reaching new audiences they want to just keep the ones that they have okay let's talk about (laughs) newsprint now and the evening standard they have reportedly sold quote money can't buy news coverage to six firms including uber and google this was a story that was published on open democracy uh, alleging that the the plot was basically there would be an advertorial package that was offered to some of these companies but as part of that package these companies would also have access to unbranded news stories in other words stories in the paper not tied to those brands in an open way news of the project known internally as london 2020 was then picked up by the drum on thursday morning the day we're recording this uh, in which john o'donnell group director for the standards parent company said the idea the evening standard was selling news was grossly inaccurate and a wildly misunderstood interpretation of the london 2020 project alex can you understand why that interpretation came to be I can understand the shock of this story if the allegations prove in any way true because the church and state element of newspapers has to be that advertising has to remain independent of news. The lines are very, very blurry now, but if you are being paid for something, you have to say that you're being paid for something. And so if those allegations are true or were true, it's firstly against IPSA regulations, it's against the law, it's against so many different things that it, it, it couldn't fly. But it's how digital companies need to be able to make ends meet Entering into content partnerships, producing content with brands is is a brilliant, wonderful thing, as long as it's clearly marked. 
if they're not marking it, then there are so many problems with that. What was your inference, having seen the document in the Open Democracy article that was shown to these brands? Do you think it was insinuated that they would get news coverage that didn't mention that they paid for it? I think when you're in those branding meetings, I think having an understanding that you, in those pieces of content, will produce wonderful content that will travel and won't somehow do the brand in a, in a different light. But you have to have that thing where you don't speak about the fact that in your newsprint you might be insulting these companies you might be taking them down you hear rumors all the time of big companies getting complaints from their advertisers saying we will pull advertising mm. that hasn't happened in my experience but you you hear those rumors all the time and each person i spoke to who's had that happen to them has replied saying great wonderful if you'd like to pull your advertising that's absolutely fine but we will not change our standards of how we do objective news they did offer the possibility of editorial though didn't they it's open to interpretation, the stuff about you'll get news stories for your association with us, because it's true, isn't it, that if an amazing statistic comes out of your brand partnership with Uber, that might legitimately make a news story that would look good for Uber and you wouldn't have to brand, because it is news, it's a quote, it's something interesting. But editorial, you know, basically saying, give us a load of money and we will write a lovely editorial, George Osborne will write a lovely editorial about you, that does seem a problematic issue. It seems problematic, and I without being in those meetings and without hearing the exact tone of those words, I think there's a lot of ways to interpret those things. Like if they're saying that we believe that we can make your brand be interpreted better by the news media is very different from saying we'll write only positive news stories about your brand. Should they be saying things like this at all, Imriel? Um, As a consumer of journalism, I don't think so. I do understand how the lines get blurred, though. We do have to make money as journalists, as writers. And I can see how if someone is giving you a huge check, uh, whether to do advertising or not, I can understand why you would look at them more favorably and maybe that kind of can maybe steer your content in a more favorable direction or I don't want to upset the sponsors. Um, So I can understand how those lines can get crossed or it becomes a little bit sketchy. But do I think they should have ever offered editorial if that's what they've done? Absolutely not. Because then where's the integrity? What is the truth? And in the world of fake news, what do we believe? I mean, there is less fake news than ever before. Just from mainstream companies, there is less fake news. It just gets more attention. Unpack that for us, Alex. There is less fake news from all of the people you got news from. But what do you mean by fake news? uh, news, What do you mean? News that is factually incorrect. And placed? I I would argue there is, from any major brand that I would have any respect for, there is none of that. So if there's a press release saying this happened, your job is to research the data and prove that that is accurate. There was research um, yesterday, which is about the number of searches for naked celebrities. It was utter nonsense. And so like, oh, should we run that? Absolutely not, because those numbers don't make any sense. So that rigour does happen, does it? It has to. So someone says, I mean, if it's, you know, we're bringing out a new range of jam and it's got Mr. Blobby on the packet. But someone calls the jam company and checks. Mr. Blobby's back. He's definitely on the packet. We probably just WhatsApp them. But like, like, (laughs) but, but. We have to. That's a great idea, by the way, isn't it? Blobby Jam. Literally just invented that. <laughs> you have to, or else, you, if you want it, there's a press release website. You can go and read all the press releases you want, and you can sort of test it out. And there's the um, citation checker where you can actually see how much of a press release has been copied and pasted. I do that with some of our writers just to double check. And if there's anything more than just quotes that we're pulling from that press release, that is a problem. Do the audience care, Imriel, though? You Probably know, not. actually, that's the thing. Um, no. Uh, a savvy audience <laughs> are used to the idea of paid-for content. They assume it's happening. It's yeah. very disturbing to journalists that the evening standard is up for sale, but it isn't actually probably to readers that much of a surprise. Yeah, no, I don't find... I wasn't particularly surprised. I saw the news break on Twitter, like I read all of my news on Twitter. Um, so anything that kind of comes out there, most of the time I'm not really fact-checking and I don't care enough because the news cycle moves so quickly. So yeah. I... 
I mean, it's a problem. They probably shouldn't do it. But will I care about this in a week? No. So that's pretty much how I feel about it all. <laughs> just going to add those quotes. This huge strategy document I'm writing doesn't care. Like, <laughs> you, like you are our target audience. So it's yeah. a case of how do you bring those people into consuming traditional news formats? It's bloody difficult. How do you make people come back to your site deliberately and knowingly as an active choice? That's the challenge that particularly digital media, but all media is facing in the coming years. Talking of paid content, have you seen Channel 4's latest experiment, Where To Britain? Have you seen this in real? I saw the video clip on Twitter. Okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Not just news, but all your entertainment on Twitter. This was paid for by Uber. Yeah. So Uber wanted some favourable press. Yes. Uh, and they have to... a rather important regulatory hurdle to clear yeah, in the next few months. Yeah, they've been getting some really a really bad rap in the media. So I can understand why they would want to go into the branded content realm. And I think it was a smart choice to go to Channel 4 and give people an insight into what their drivers get up to and also what passengers can also get up to in Uber cars. Like it, it's a cute concept. It works. Is it, it basically like Chicken Shop or any of those shows where they just basically, put it's fixed not, cameras? It's not, like a, it's not a genius idea. Right? Yeah. It's very it's genius in that it's so simple and i think a lot of the times i think we can all most of us can relate if we've ever got into an uber you ever get into a silent uber or a really chatty one um and they tend to have focused on the chatty ones which are quite nice probably makes better um so yeah i think it's a really good move i think it's really smart i'm not sure why it's on channel four i felt like that was definitely it could have been probably anywhere else but does it matter for an audience though again i mean that's what we keep coming back to because that's who has to consume this stuff does it matter for an audience if a big show with a big budget is effectively paid for by a brand do the audience care um no because every hollywood movie like morgan spurlock's greatest movie ever sold that stuff is everywhere so if you haven't watched that movie absolutely watch it because it opened my eyes to just how much sponsored content is in those films and really if you're being open with it everyone's getting an Uber it's sponsored by Uber it's very clear what's happening this is the form of advertising that's brilliant and perfect because you are very clear what's happening and well it's brilliant and perfect except if it was made genuinely independently by a production company in the way that it used to in Channel 4 with carefully negotiated access with Uber and one of the drivers sexually harass someone, which, you know, is something that does happen on all minicabs, but Uber has been in the press for as a problem, mm-hmm. that would be included in the show. I get a feeling that wouldn't happen in this show. Aren't they just using pretty well-known figures, or is that was that just the sort of promo? The it's promo an entertainment well show, yeah. but what I'm saying is it would be a different show if it was completely independent, wouldn't it? If, if you've got some great footage that was interesting and revealing about a company... You might publish it and you can't if they're paying for it. I mean, it comes back down to that, doesn't and it? I think the difference between that is a documentary and a sort of entertainment show. Like if you're producing that sort of dispatches program where that will take maybe a year. If you're creating partnered content, the brand does not get signed off over what is included. So my hope would be that if anything did come up, but then that would still be shown. So the, if, we're doing, if we have a sponsored content, that means that the brand does have sign off and then it's labeled that feature. Mm. If they if it's partnered content, then we they they don't get that final sign off. And I think that's the important discrepancy. And I don't don't know the ins and outs of this programme, but that that's the important bit. Yeah, my understanding was that it was partnered and the production company, I think it's Gravity, um, they they got final say on like the editorial. So they probably weren't going to lean towards any problematic content being in there because they probably didn't want to they lose money. They want a second money. series, don't yeah. they? Yeah. But so. that, that is reassuring. I suppose that is a reassurance. Maybe that should be made more obvious, but maybe, as we're saying, yeah. the public don't actually care. Um, let's talk about uh, what 
Culture Minister Matt Hancock has been up to. Alex, what has he been saying this week? <laughs> he has been saying that the wild west of the internet needs to come to an end. He's also really worried about age verification, particularly about actually making sure that children don't access things, young people don't access things they're not meant to do. Yeah, which, I mean, just parking everything else for a minute, GDPR and pornography and all the other things that the government are looking into, on that point, age verification for social media... The government have a point there, don't they, Emriel, that the services themselves, Twitter and Facebook particularly, have age limits that they don't then seem to care about enforcing. That's true, but people also lie because it's a self... You put it in yourself. So, yeah, I but mean, I've should lied you before. be allowed... Should you have to verify who you are and what age you are before you use a platform where you can openly abuse people? Um, oh, I love that you added that little bit at the end because well, that's, that's problem, really important, right? right? Um, yes and no. I think I'm not a fan of having too much regulation, personally. I feel like... It, I'm actually really pro-free speech. So um, I think, yeah, people should be able to kind of do what they want. We are kind of able and living um, to make decisions. But children, like you say, should have some regulation around that. So how do they enforce that in in tech companies that are global companies and we're the UK and they don't really care? I don't know. That's a really tough question. But when you sign up for Zipcar, you have to scan your driving license and that's how you get to hire a car. It's not that difficult, is it? If they insert a thing where you just have to take a picture of your ID of any kind and it's private and they just verify that you're who you say you are, that's not impossible technologically. You do need a qualification to drive. You don't need a qualification to be able to type on a computer or tap on your phone or to be able to speak out loud. Ultimately, like the, the best way I've heard of phrasing this was a thing I saw on Twitter because I got all my funny jokes from Twitter. Um, <laughs> and it was about like this person was really in favor of the regulations about age verification because it just me- means that kids learn to code earlier, learn how to use VPNs and learn <laughs> how to hide their identity. But and that is great for the future of the economy because it means everyone is more computer literate at a very early age. The idea that we're somehow pretending to regulate this to save the children, it just means that big corporations, big governments can keep more control over more data and then all of the interesting and the darker, weirder stuff of the internet is driven underground, driven into like into Tor, driven into unusual browsers, dri- driven towards a Silk Road. And that is more dangerous for young people that, because that is truly unregulated sure. and stuff goes down there. I know it does. And I know that that's a cynical joke that you're telling, but there's a truth it's in true. it. It's entirely true. But, but part of the truth of that is that actually maybe you do have to still be a bit of a geeky kid to be able to access the really dark stuff. That actually, when you know what you openly type into Google is still the main way that everyone, including children, tries to find information. And if you can easily access pornography, for example, surely that is something that isn't a freedom of speech issue. That's a problem. I absolutely disagree. I think teaching children or teaching young people from early age about what pornography is about what sex is about all of about what drugs are about all of these teaching children it's about a nine-year-old seeing extremely graphic sexual imagery just because they've typed the wrong word into google if you want to type if you want to vpn your browser if you want to add all your ad blockers you're entirely anonymous and and you prove you're 18 within seconds that takes about a minute and a half through through normal google searches that anyone even an 11 year old could learn within seconds so it's a it's a complete false promise and there are so many illegal things that happen on the internet that should be regulated denying the freedom of speech to young people which is essentially taking away major platforms i'm not talking about denying freedom of speech i'm just talking about having a basic level of civility which we've had for you know hundreds of years regarding roughly the age you should be to be appropriately consuming certain content Or invited onto a platform to give an opinion that might come back and haunt you. (laughs) Uh, That's a different question. So the idea that everyone should delete their digital identity at 21, uh, it was definitely a senior Google executive who said that a few years ago. That I wholeheartedly agree with. I ran a pseudonymed 
social media presence until I was 23 years old with good like with good reason wait what that's intriguing isn't it <laughs> yeah you know you asked the question in real i yeah. want to know what you because were... like, i was representing the audience I, I grew up with social media like all of the, so all of the facebook stuff i kind of grew up with and that's how i've made my career now but i was very young i wanted to have fun and i and i knew that i didn't know where the boundaries were and i knew that i wanted to experiment and so i didn't want to do that under my own name because i worked for the bbc at the time and those two things don't match. So if I was doing an anonymous account that then is now deleted and happily is removed from all servers because I know what I'm doing with the internet, um, it means that I know what's right and what's wrong. Actually, it's a great test. You can put stuff out on the internet. And if the internet reacts and says that's really inappropriate, you are then challenged. It actually makes you learn quicker about what is and what isn't okay. I mean, look, we can, we can debate whether the government have a point. All I'm saying is I think they might have a point. But I guess the issue is what everyone's saying is that it's almost impossible to implement. And that's what's happened this week, isn't it? Matt Hancock's basically admitted they're not going to be able to do anything about this at the moment. Yeah, I don't think think it's going to be possible. I think it's kind of a lost cause and they're trying to regulate something that is inherently... Like you can't do it. It's, we're talking about a global population. Like social media is global. It's international. It goes beyond our shores, uh, and people are interacting with people beyond our shores. And yes, there are inherent safety issues with that. But I mean, for the most part, how, what percentage of kids are really stumbling upon pornography or problematic material? What is not? There's already stuff that's already out here in the public, just in the media. Just Donald Trump existing is a problem. So I think in many ways they're already consuming weird things um things that they probably shouldn't be consuming it's out there we just need to have open conversations that they can access to um, and understand why this is right and this is wrong because that's really all we can do about it <laughs> and gdpr let's not do the spin-off podcast where we explain what the fuck that is because <laughs> we've only got so many minutes in our lives but how has it hit advertisers in real how has it been hitting digital marketing so apparently <sighs> This is very confusing. So Google kind of thought they could let advertisers know the day before GDPR uh, came into effect that they probably shouldn't or they can't use the ad servers because they need to get regulated properly, Um, which is appalling because people spend tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of pounds in advertising almost daily. Um, So to let them know like the night before, you probably shouldn't do that um, was a bit appalling. And the advertisers have kind of kicked back and said, well, screw you guys. We're not going to we're not going to advertise, at least not for now. So the spend has plummeted. I, I think this is going to be a very temporary problem. I think Google's going to come up with a pretty quick solution and get them back on side because it's... Quite important to their business model. Yeah, it's essential to but how they why operate. why did this happen? How did this happen? Because as much as we like to think that GDPR was this... We knew about it from the offset. We'd been working on it for six months. It's kind of snuck up on everyone. So when everyone started getting those emails, maybe a couple of weeks ago, I was like, what, what, why is this happening? I don't think people, even I was surprised by the level of emailing and the level of sort of panic that has been caused by this because it's quite simple regulation. Just give, just track your data properly, allow people choices. It doesn't have to be this really complex thing, but I think people just panicked. And so Slate, for example, a US publisher, they, if you don't accept cookies on their site, they just ban you from the website. Like once you want to let cookies, which is against the law, but if you would like to reinstate your cookies, you can go on our site again. Okay, question for maybe both of you know the answer to this, but I genuinely don't. When you go on a news website because you've been directed there by a link or by social media to read a story and then the thing pops up, we're going to track you and use cookies. And there are two options, right? There's either accept or there's the little cross like on Windows where you can press the cross and the window disappears. Yeah. 
what happens if you press the cross? Because you don't get booted off the site. You're I, still on it. You're still reading the story. I've pressed the cross because I just refuse to accept cookies. But I think they still use cookies. Um, <laughs> I've been kicked off one site um, since the GDPR thing came into effect. They booted me off and sent me back to Google. Right. Um, so I've had a couple of sites that kick you off if you say no. But for the most you're part, not they continue. You're no, are you? You're saying, oh, I can't be bothered to answer this. Like yeah, in the language I'm, of the internet, that's sort of what the cross means, isn't it? I think it depends on the site. I think everyone's taken a different view on this. So I think it's looking through those terms and conditions at what exactly that cross means they will each different site will have a different version of which what of that course means. is what everyone does isn't it when they've just they can't be bothered to read a three sentence uh, pop-up so of course they're going to turn straight to the terms and conditions of the news website <laughs> okay we'll be back with more news in brief after this If you've had your fair share of rogue landlords you might see someone you recognize in bright sparks latest production bad tenants rogue landlords needless to say you won't recognize the tenants. What you might not recognize is the sterling post-production work done at RunVT Studios. RunVT has 15 offline and two online editing suites, a bass-like grading theater, a dubbing suite, and a voiceover booth set over four floors in a central London townhouse. You can watch Bad Tenants Rogue Landlords on the Five Demand catch-up service whenever you like, but to see what the RunVT Studios can do for you, go to runvt.tv now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Time for some media news in brief now. Imriel and Alex are still with me. Uh, let's um, talk about telly now. And uh, potentially, ITV could be a joint owner with the BBC in a billion-pound bid to buy out UK TV. What's the background to this? At the moment, BBC and Discovery co-own uh, UK TV, which owns so many different TV channels, owns so many different things. And it's now looking like it's going to be a co-venture between BBC and ITV, which aren't traditionally that 
friendly bedfellows because they are like look at look at how happy Robert Beston is where he is now look at how angry the BBC are about it um and what this could mean is just this huge even huger conglomerate and we're moving the TV industry closer and closer into these fewer and fewer owners and there's no space left for any new companies to come through and take over things well, there's a couple of things going on here, isn't there? There's discovery strategy in the UK, which we'll talk about a bit more in a minute. Uh, but there's also the fact that this isn't about the model that UK TV established when they were um, brought into being by the BBC and Flextech, as it was then, which was about basically providing a commercial opportunity for the BBC to monetize its back catalogue. Is that why UK TV was... Wow. Basically, I mean, gold is showing repeats of BBC programmes with ads in, right? Um this time, this would be about showing ITV programs as well as BBC programs. So what's the thinking there, Imriel? I'm guessing something online. I, I would imagine that it's to combat Netflix's evil rise to the top when it comes to TV and original content. It's important, I think, that they, they do this and they actually get some skin in the game. Whether it's going to be a massive success, I'm not sure. I think it's going to come down to the kind of content they're putting on the platform. Well, this is, we should say it's all rumoured at the moment. ITV haven't yeah. actually said they're going to make a bid for this, but they've they got to act quickly because the BBC has this fixed price yeah. for Discovery's share of UK TV, which I think expires the end of next week. But it's just quite interesting as we were talking about Project Kangaroo, as it used to be called in the last episode, this idea that Channel 4 and BBC and ITV could all team up and make a, a sort of Netflix Amazon rival in the UK. That involves government regulation. But presumably, if the BBC and ITV, the two biggest players, just own UK TV, and UK TV has the UK TV player, which is quite a good name for a British-wide <laughs> commercial streaming service anyway, they could shortcut all the regulation. The regulation will find a way to intervene in that. If it becomes big enough that it becomes something that it, that should be regulated, when it comes to additional broadcasters, particularly around streaming services, there is already an incredibly robust network in place of regulation so that they can try all they want. There's no real way around that regulation. You can call it Project Kangaroo. You can exclude Channel 4 if you wish. The traditional broadcasters, they play by the rules and it, the rules will catch up to them eventually. I think it's still a great idea. I think it still could work. It's, it can't be a, it's not going to be a shortcut. It can't be a shortcut. Discovery Channel could be moving to Poland. What's that about? Well, Brexit, <laughs> to put simply, uh, they're worried. I, guess, I don't know if they're necessarily worried, but it's, they're saying it's part of their wider global strategy to um, create content across across the globe. And Brexit has kind of thrown some of that into uncertainty where they're headquartered in the UK right now. So they're looking at, I guess, the Netherlands and Poland as an option so that they can continue to broadcast across Europe uh, as it's unclear as to whether they'll be able to do that post-Brexit. I think it's cool. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen to everyone's jobs, but they said they're going to keep an office here. It's just not going to be the HQ, so to speak. That's yeah, so, my understanding. So Discovery are definitely closing their playout hub in West London either way, which affects up to 100 jobs. But they say that's the technological thing. They're now able to transmit European channels from America, so they'll do that where they're based anyway. So this is about where their European HQ is, basically, and they'll still have a thing in London, a studio or something. Mm -hmm. Does it matter, Alex? And is it really about Brexit? I mean, The Guardian said it was about Brexit, but they didn't. I, they, I don't think they're going to say it's about Brexit, but I think ultimately if you get 27 states to aim at without any regulation, with open borders, without any particular problems, or if you get one state with the point is nobody knows, if you're looking for certain answers, you stick with one of the 27. You don't go into the one that may or may not be one of the 28. So it ha Brexit has to be one of the one of the issues. Also, L London is an incredibly expensive place to work, expensive place to hire staff. There's there's a lot of saturation here, so it will be a little bit of both. But Brexit will will be one of the key deciding factors. So, do we think maybe other big media organisations like Discovery are going to be making similar uh, moves? Absolutely, probably. Yes. Any predictions? 
Viacom. Every, everyone to Turner. Hamburg. Every, I think Viacom will Disney. probably bounce uh, just because a lot of their content comes from America anyway. Mm. Um, and they want to be able to broadcast that across Europe. And my understanding was that the way the UK is currently set up means that they can do that <laughs> um, without too much hassle. If, that, if Brexit now throws that into a question, then what's the point of them being here? But I suppose the, the pro-Brexit argument for this, which doesn't get made very often, is, well, yes, but then they might establish a British office that's just for Britain and advertising in Britain and just for creatives in Britain that will be catering just to Britain and that that won't mean fewer British jobs in three years' time. It will mean less stuff being catered to Europe from Britain. And that Boris Johnson press release will be released time and time and time again. <laughs> Let's talk about the location shortlist for Channel 4's second national headquarters. That's right, not their actual headquarters. We found out back in the spring they are retaining their London headquarters. They're opening a second national HQ in the regions, which will in no way be inferior or secondary. And the shortlist is Bristol, Cardiff, Glasgow, Greater Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool and the West Midlands. And here's the shortlist for the Creative Hub. That's where they're going to stick a Channel 4 news correspondent and a desk. Belfast, Brighton, Newcastle, Gateshead, Nottingham, Sheffield, and Stoke-on-Trent. Thoughts, Imriel? Well, the shortlist for the Creative Hub was very random, but I'm actually really excited about Channel 4 going outside um, of London to get a new HQ. I'm hoping that does mean uh, more job opportunities in in whatever area they pick, Um, and also just for new content to come out of that that area. I think we are so, so, so dominated in the South with what news we get, uh, how content's created, everything is just so dry. I'm really, I'm really quite keen to see what they come up with. Alex Hudson, you're nodding. I agree. Also, because Leeds is a wonderful place and Leeds is a wonderful place to create content and Leeds has become the sort of second city and there's still a load, that massive creative group of people in that city that don't have as many outlets as perhaps they should do. So not that I'm biased anyway, not that I may or may not have been born in Leeds and brought up in Leeds and that's my hometown, but I think Leeds is a great place to have a home of the new Channel 4 offices. Yeah, it is going to go to Birmingham though, isn't it? Probably, yeah. Yeah, probably Um, should. (laughs) (laughs) And... I mean, let's not debate this endlessly because we have before, but just briefly, of course it's true that if you take executives out of London, then you'll get slightly different ideas. Slightly. But Channel 4 is a commissioning house, effectively. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be a better use of money to just give more money to regional production companies to use regional talent rather than putting more buildings around? You need to build those human relationships because you need to build up that level of trust. If you have to go in and you've never met this person or you met this person once when you're on a train journey, you don't trust them. You know you've seen their work, but you don't give them free reign. Once you have that working relationship, once you see them every day, once you hang out with them, go for dinner with them once a week, you know their work, you know who they are, you know how great they are. And that's where the real difference in voices and real differences in content comes. Okay, let's talk about Netflix now and their new series from Vox. Uh, Imriel, what's this? So... I believe Vox are extending their YouTube content into 16 to 18 minute pieces on just explaining things to people. Yes. Um, I know that monogamy was one of them. I saw it pop up on my Netflix. I just didn't watch it because I just didn't want to. But they are trying to experiment with telling informative stories and different styles of content on Netflix, which threw into question whether we can get uh, news via Netflix or streaming services because typically streaming services is all about the longevity of the content long past its, I guess, release date. Mm. Um, So I'm excited. Because these explainers are things that are sort of vaguely related to current affairs. Yeah. But But they have a longer tail, don't they, than news. Uh, And Netflix have always denied, haven't they, Alex, that they are interested in making news as such. 
I think that's because straight news is particularly difficult to monetize. So when you're looking at your business plan, would you like to advertise around this beautifully high cost production piece? Or do you want to advertise around this quite haunting news story around war? Like, which one would the advertisers pick? Of course, it's quite a simple decision. Yeah, but Netflix don't have advertisers. Oh, good point. Um, but so then why wouldn't they? Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. Because the short-term nature of news means it, it doesn't have if, enough viewers. I like think, they'd be pouring money into something that's only seen that evening. I think then Vice News had that same problem. Vice Vice produced some of the most powerful, wonderful news stories. And so Vox's brilliant idea is to actually take a step back. So when you talk about it, it's vaguely related to news and current affairs. It it's a it's an event that's being talked about, but it's not something that's going to date in in three months, six months, maybe five years. You look back at it. Oh, that was nice that people thought that at the time. But it's that's half life of a Netflix program is about is way shorter than that anyway. Also, this is YouTube length, isn't it? Yeah, it is very YouTubey. When I was reading it, I was like, why would you not just go onto YouTube and watch this? Instead? And what is the reason? Why wouldn't you go on YouTube? I have. I'm not. I'm not quite clear on that. Um, for me, I, I'm not a massive YouTube consumer anyway. But I know a lot of, like, millions and millions of people go to YouTube for original content. Um, so I think maybe Netflix is maybe in the future looking to make a play for having original pieces on there or, like, a gateway to that. We don't know what Netflix is doing, and that's the beautiful thing about it. But I think there is room for that kind of content on the platform. I think people want different things um, and consumable short-form pieces, which is what Vox is creating. So I think it's a wonderful experiment. I think Netflix is creating premium products. So you're not going to see... Sort of YouTube is a free-for-all. Netflix is creating premium. And one of the good things about Netflix is that it's willing to pay to get that premium. So YouTube's business model is very much ad-funded. Netflix's model is if they see brilliant content, they're willing to pay to make sure that it goes on Netflix, it stays on Netflix, and it's not really available anywhere else, at least for a little while. And that's great for publishers and it's great for Netflix. So if Netflix start eating into some of YouTube's audience who want that short-form content, but they find it on Netflix because they're already paying for a subscription and it's glossier... um, this could mean, perhaps, a decline in YouTube. Could it also mean a decline in Facebook Live? Um, I think Facebook Live reach... So, I'll, very quickly, Facebook Watch is launching in the UK. We believe next year that Facebook are very keen not to talk about it in any way. That It's launched in the US. Uh, the numbers of viewers that it's seeing is, frankly, preposterous. Uh, and they're, they're preposterously small? Preposterously large. Oh, oh right. Ridiculous. Like, is that because Facebook Analytics is bollocks? <laughs> that's your view. I think Facebook analytics is aren't perfect, but and I think they need work. That's that's what I meant. I mean, if you look up bollocks in the dictionary, I think aren't perfect is, uh, and they're not as detailed as we would like them. But and a, and a view in Facebook is three second view rather than it sort of being fifty yeah, percent view. Stuff, yeah. Um, but when it comes to those numbers, just the valid numbers, we don't have access to that. We're not part of Watch yet. Um, they're huge. So there are there are programs that are getting so twenty, thirty, forty million views. And with that, what you're seeing is more traditional video on more more Facebook platforms declining in reach, declining in viewership, and that's felt across the industry. Chartbeat released a report uh, yesterday or the day before about just the declining of Facebook reach overall across the industry, across the world. BuzzFeed are now looking to publish videos on Twitch, and this has been taken as something of a slight against Facebook Live because they were very much in bed with those guys at one stage. They were. I feel like BuzzFeed did everything on Facebook Live. Um, Twitch is an exciting platform that I keep getting tagged in on Twitter and various other places. And I just thought it was for gamers mm. playing games and, and watching themselves. And, and what is it now? Because I went to their homepage because I've not got the app just to see <laughs> yeah. what they're advertising. And it is still basically either about video games, so live streams of people playing yeah. video games, or it seems talk shows and shows about sport that are basically for gamers regarding their interests in other things. 
It's very gamer heavy right now. Um, I have seen people like you can curate how you your viewership. But um, in terms of what I've seen so far, some people have really taken it and used it to do how to videos. And I've seen graphic designers do some really incredible kind of live drawing things on there. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of scope for it to be quite an exciting way to um, create different content. But I don't know what BuzzFeed's going to do on it. I'm really curious as to if they're just shifting one type, the same content to just a different platform. I think the thing with Twitch that isn't with YouTube, YouTube, you can be light touch. You can go into it and you can sort of do this thing that's weekly or monthly. Mm. With Twitch, you need to have a de- more dedicated audience. You need to do it more regularly. You need to build up that sort of sense of trust and sense of the Twitch comments are fast and furious and happen while it's going on. And they are the most blunt of commenters. And that's quite a high bar. Uh, for the internet and so uh, I watch poker on there sometimes and it, it's enthralling because it's it's a really high quality production and Twitch is the platform they've chosen because that's where a lot of the, the sort of people who will watch that content are so does it make sense for a news organisation to be there I don't think it makes sense yes but that, that's not stopped BuzzFeed before and I think it's about media organisations taking risks, gambling and experimenting. Maybe do it for three months, maybe do it for six months and by then we'll know and you'll either see every other media company jumping in uh, or you'll see, oh, glad you tried that so we didn't have to. Okay, you'll be pleased to know there is just time for our media quiz. This week we're playing How to Woo Women. Uh, There have been a few initiatives announced recently aiming to include more female perspectives in the mainstream media. So let's find out which ones worked and which didn't. You're going to buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So Imriel, you will say... Imriel? And Alex, you will say... Alex. Fastest voice box first. Let's go. Here is question one. Which digital network plan to celebrate women's voices with Hear Her Day? Alex. Alex. BBC. B- no, that's a half point. Which, <laughs> which specific network within the BBC family of brands, for Christ's sake? BBC Radio 6. Okay, correct. Six yes. Music. Six Sorry, music, there's yeah. so many different names. Finally, you have every the week. whole point. Yeah, okay. Uh, yes, BBC Radio 6 Music will broadcast 19 hours of radio presented by and focusing on women on the 8th of June. Uh, Imriel, what do you make of the Hear Her campaign? Great for them. I mean, why, why do we need a whole day of women on the radio? Here's question number two. <laughs> Who will give this year's Dimbleby lecture on the 6th of June? Buzz with your name, you know the answer. It's a lady... It's a feminist. Name a feminist. You've got a chance. <laughs> Alex, Polly Toynbee. Uh, yeah, reasonable guess. No, it is the author Jeanette Winterson. <laughs> either of you tell me what the focus of her address will be. She wants to address how historically women have been outside and how in 2018 we are beginning to celebrate women on the inside. Uh, and here is question number three. Who's editing the new European special, new Imriel. feminist edition? Yes, Imriel. <laughs> Caroline Criado Perez. Correct, yes. The equality campaigner, Caroline Criado Perez, who successfully lobbied for Jane Austen to feature on a £10 note. Uh, is this a good idea for a collaboration? Do you think the new European becoming the new feminist, Alex? I, I think anything that gets that voice out there is a good thing. I think there's, there's a little bit of tokenism in all of this and that actually building out meaningful change rather than sort of doing a press release about change are two different things but it's important that while that equality doesn't exist that we make the sort of push and these events albeit ceremonial actually move the dial a little bit closer to equality as we as we move closer there and eventually it'll just become this thing that we don't have to make a song and dance about it will just be true Imriel I'm gonna guess that you agree with that but what do you think about the new European actually becoming the new feminist um, I think it's really good. Um, they've got a really good selection of writers. I'm really keen to see like what Bonnie Greer puts out, for example. So when they sh- had the shortlist of writers, I was very 
keen to see that. I think it's important, especially for something like the New European. They they might as well just have like a feminist issue if they're going to do it. Might as well put the work out there, let people know who's out there, what women's voices matter. So yeah, I'm here for it. But you won't be listening to Six Music at the same time as listening? I will not, Thank you, Imriel. (laughs) A very promising debut. Very enjoyable to have you on the show. Thank you, Alex Hudson. If you enjoy the show and you've just been paid, uh, you can help the Media Podcast continue by making a donation. Just visit themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose a voluntary subscription that suits you. Plus, you can join thousands of others who get new episodes as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale, sharing. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye.